Bibles this morning and open them with me to Hebrews chapter 2, where we have been studying and preaching recently. And uh, we're going to do a little slip away or tangent to that passage this morning and look at some other considerations. So let's just turn there and read first the text so that we can begin. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. When we read different texts of scripture, we find sometimes that there's a, a teaching that's involved as you're going through the scripture in the, in the text itself of what's going on here in Hebrews. But sometimes incidental to what's going on here in the book we're studying, there's a truth or a reality that has broader application, applies uh, to another theological topic elsewhere in the Bible. That's why it's so hard sometimes to just preach through a book exegetically because we want to stop and go off on these rabbit trails here and there. Well, that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm just going to go off on the rabbit trail right off the bat instead of preaching on the text. And so we're going to look at this text a little bit more closely, but let's ask the Lord to direct us as we do that. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your wonderful word. The depths of it are so meaningful, so, so, so far beyond what we can sometimes comprehend. And I just pray, Lord, that you'd help me to uh, have simplicity and, and explain things carefully so that we can understand the wonderful truths that you have for us here in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the history of the church, there have been various phenomena or movements that have threatened to split the church, and Satan has sought to exploit the church and destroy it. And uh, in, in my lifetime, I've seen that happen, and I've seen uh, the transition take place to where we are today. So I'm kind of taking advantage of my opportunity to give a broad perspective, being an old man now, uh, of... Uh, what I've seen happen in my lifetime. When I first started out in the ministry in the 1970s, the big issue that was splitting churches was the charismatic movement. It was speaking in tongues. Now, that's still around today, but not as prevalent. But it was very hot at that time and, and very difficult to deal with because some people didn't have a thorough understanding of the scripture. There was a lot of misunderstanding of the scripture. And we've preached on that subject here, and I'm not going to thoroughly go into that. But what I want to point out as we do a little springboard here is that as we read these verses, verses 3 and 4 are a proof or an evidence that the miraculous sign gifts of the New Testament era had come to an end by the time Hebrews was written in A.D. 68, there in that neighborhood. The miraculous sign gifts had come to an end. Now, we talk about miracles today, and uh, 
God indeed does some things that are truly amazing and are miracles, uh, but they're not sign miracles like they were in New Testament times. In New Testament times, miracles were performed by Jesus and by the apostles that were undeniable and fabulous. And so they could not be denied as something that was totally against nature when a dead person was revived to life, when uh, lepers were healed instantly before people's eyes and cripples like in the temple there in Acts 2 jumped up to their feet. These were undeniable public miracles. God works in miracles today, but they're, they're always in such a way that they don't demonstrate some totally undeniable type of activity that even the world has to believe. Uh, let me give you an example. A miracle happened in my life this week, I think, really. I went to the doctor, and I found out uh, what was going on a little bit. He told me, and of course, a few weeks ago, I found out that the medication I was taking was not fighting the cancer, and I, my, my score number had gone up a little bit, and he wanted to change the medication. And so that was disappointing because he had hoped that medication would suppress the cancer for an indefinite period of time, maybe three, four, five, six years or longer. But it only lasted about three months. And so he put me on a new one now, and we're praying the same thing here. You can pray with me on that, that this new medication that I'm taking will uh, suppress the cancer for, for years. But un unknown to me, he was doing some testing in, in the background, and uh, he took some of my blood and sent it into a lab and, and found out that I was eligible for immunotherapy. You may, I don't know quite what that is, uh, but here's the point. The point is that only 3% of the population, or at least of those tested, qualify for immunotherapy. And uh, it's a very positive thing to be able to get that kind of treatment. It's, it's a preferred treatment. In fact, if he would have known it before he put me on this new regimen of, of pills, I probably would be on that treatment now. So it uh, gave me another alternative before I'd have to look at a chemotherapy route, which I don't have much uh, sensitivity to, to following. So what I'm saying to you is... Uh, I was part of 3% of that population that qualified. Well, that's, that's amazing. The doctor was quite happy about that. In fact, he's normally very straight and level. He actually smiled at me when he uh, told me about that. And so God still works providentially in miraculous kinds of ways. We're not denying that. But not in fantastic, miraculous public uh, shows of his power like he did in the life of Jesus and in the life of the apostles. And this text here demonstrates that truth, that those miraculous gifts did indeed come to an end. And so let's look at it, just see how that's true here in verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and, here's the key word, was confirmed unto them by them that heard him. God also bearing witness with, with both sign miracles, well, I'm sorry, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Now, the statement there, was confirmed, means that it happened in the past. 
It's complete. It was in the past. It's not the present time. It's, they're not being confirmed with miracles at the present time. And, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness. So this was an event that had ceased by the time the author of Hebrews wrote this, this book. The fact that this is in an aorist tense for the, the Greek people, which makes it a past event, and the bearing, which is a continuous present, means that that bearing, which is continuous present, was something that was going on continually during that past time because it first set the framework and then it talked about what was going on. So the language of this verse says that these sign miracles had ceased. So I, I, I want to just give you a, a little word of explanation there and go back and look at Acts chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me. Acts chapter 2. Uh, some of you, especially some of you younger children, may not know what tongues speaking is all about. Tongue speaking is speaking in another language that you have not studied or learned. Miraculous, a miracle. It's speaking in another language that you have not studied or learned. And that's what happened here on Pentecost. It says here, chapter 2 of Acts, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came sound from heaven and of the rushing of mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, that's other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Uh, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia, and in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in parts of Libya around about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongue the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the, with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Galilee, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Uh, the, the twelve apostles here in this text were given the miraculous ability to speak in a foreign language they had never studied. Now, I don't have time to develop this thoroughly, but I have developed it thoroughly, and it's in our sermon library back in 2008, we're going to great detail to show that uh, the tongues were indeed languages and not just gibberish or some kind of foreign 
uh, tongue that nobody can understand. It's the angel's language or something like that. Here it's clearly foreign languages because people are involved in that. In other places it's somewhat questionable and it takes a little bit more study and thought. But the, they spoke in languages they had never studied. I've always wanted to speak in a foreign language. I, I took German in high school and uh, I was kind of a flop at it. And uh, I've worked hard at the languages in scripture, although they're not spoken languages. They're languages you work in a little different way. But it's an amazing thing. Languages are, are amazing. And I love to listen to other people unless I have to, if I'm a bystander, not if I'm uh, trying to communicate. And when they speak in other languages, it's very interesting. But here they spoke in languages so that all these people could understand. Uh, and, but, but I do want this morning to just point out a couple of things to you about this, to either whet your appetite on looking deeper into it or to uh, help you understand enough that you know what's going on here in the Scripture. And that is, first of all, that those who were speaking here in tongues were only the 12 apostles. Only the 12 apostles. And so if you look back here, you find it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were gathered all in one accord. Now the previous section here talks about the 120 who were gathered together. But you'll notice in verse 26, it says he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And there's no chapter division in the text, actually. And when it says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, they refers to the apostles. Now, that's the antecedent of the pronoun there, a grammar matter issue. And you, you might want to try to debate that with me. But if you look on, you find that you really have no choice because when you see some of the descriptions, for example, in verse 7, it says, and all these which speak Galileans. Now, there would have been in the 120 a mixture of people, not all Galileans. But all the disciples were Galileans save one, which was Judas. So these were Galileans. These were the apostles. And another thing that often is misunderstood is uh, what they were doing here, what the purpose of this was. Some have said this is the presentation of the gospel so everybody can hear it in their own language. Uh, there are missionaries who have come back with testimonies that they either spoke in a foreign language they didn't know or the natives where they went heard them in, a language, in their language when they were speaking in their own language. I don't know about that. I'm, I'm not going to debate those kind of issues. Uh, we'll leave that to the Lord. Uh, but in this particular situation, it was just the 12 apostles. And you'll notice then that they spoke the wonderful works of God in verse 11. The wonderful works of God. The purpose of the tongue's experience was to get everybody's attention. And it was also an announcement that God was changing his program. And it wasn't just going to be Jews like it had been in the Old Testament. It was going to be Gentiles too. You know, it would be difficult for some of us, maybe all of us, if somebody came into our church and, and we had large numbers of people coming into our church that were just totally different from us for some reason, maybe culturally or the way they dress, the way they act, the customs they had. That's, that's kind of a difficult thing to do. Uh, much less 
a person who in the past has been considered you, you, you separate from. And that's what's happening here. And so God is beginning in this experience of the birth of the church on Pentecost to make the point that the gospel and the church is for peoples of all ethnic groups. And that was hard for the apostle, not hard for the apostles sometimes, and hard for uh, believers, Jewish believers, to understand. Remember, uh, there were many Jewish believers in the early church, many believers in God who became Christians immediately upon Christ being crucified and resurrected because they recognized him as Messiah according to the scriptures. But you'll notice here in verse 14 that everybody stops speaking in tongues and what happens? What happens in verse... Everybody look, especially you young people. What, what happens here in verse 34? I'm sorry, 14. Who has been speaking? In the previous verses. Who has been speaking in the previous verses? Can anybody tell me? Who was speaking in tongues? Yeah. The 11 apostles, right. And who is speaking in verse 14 and following? Peter. Now, it's, if, they, if they were using the languages to communicate the gospel there, why did Peter get up and speak, and why didn't they continue to speak in the languages? Well, the answer to that is that the speaking in tongues was just to get everybody's attention. And Peter spoke in what is called the lingua franca. Uh, it's not so true in America today because most everybody speaks English, although that's changed some. But in countries it, in countries in bygone eras, uh, they had people spoke different languages, but there'd be one language that was dominant. The lingua franca was what they called that. Many places in the world today, you can go and speak to people in different languages, but they know English. Praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, you can go speak to them in English and they'll understand you. The majority of people will understand you in English, whereas if you choose a particular dialect or a particular other language, uh, only a few of the people in the group might understand you. So that's what's happening here. These people come from all over, but uh, Latin or, or Greek was the, uh, not Latin, but Greek was the lingua franca. So he, or Aramaic, I think it was, it was Aramaic. And so when he got up to speak, he spoke in Aramaic, and generally everybody understood him in the Aramaic language. That's what's going on here. So just, again, we're summarizing and not giving you all the verses and chapters and so forth to prove all this, which I love to do, but I'd have you here the rest of the day because uh, this was a series of four or five messages. But uh, only the apostles spoke in tongues. And throughout the book of Acts, this is what you learn. In all the sign miracles and all the people that spoke in tongues, there was only a limited group that did that, and that limited group was this. The apostles and those on whom they laid their hands. And it could not be passed on beyond that. In other words, I could come to an area and I could lay my hand upon you here and 
bestow a spiritual gift upon you and he'd be able to speak in tongues or do miracles. That's why, that's why uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 1 uh, that he yearned to go to Rome that he might bestow some spiritual gift upon them. The point was no apostle had been to Rome and so none of the great the spiritual gifts of the miraculous spiritual gifts were, were functional in Rome. He wanted to go there so he could bestow some gift on them so that they would have all the gifts that were operative at that time. And so only the apostles and those on whom they laid their hands were able to perform these miracles. And the reason is that they were sign miracles intended to authenticate the apostles. They were miracles that were intended to tell people, listen, listen, this is of God. The Gentiles needed some kind of a sign to know that God was changing his program. And as you go through the book of Acts, you will find, if you go through and trace all the miracles, all the tongue speaking, you will find that all the miracles take place are done either by the apostles or those who, on whom they laid their hands or in the presence of the apostles when some people spoke in tongues. And I, I think, if I recall right, in every situation, it's where Gentiles are involved. And the point is to try to tell the Jewish believers that Gentiles were being received into the church freely on equal ground with them, which is clearly taught to us in the epistles later, but was a new concept to them. So the speaking in tongues was a, was a way of God authenticating the apostles. And we also find in 1 Corinthians 13, 14 there that it was condemnation to the Jews who did not believe, who refused to accept the fact that God was coming to us through Christ and that uh, Gentiles were being brought into the church. But that all ceased. That all ceased. Uh, Hebrews text, 1 Corinthians says it will cease. 13, 1 Corinthians 13. And the scriptures here in uh, Hebrews tell us that it had ceased by the time Hebrews came along. And the early church fathers in two and three hundreds after that said, we don't know what this phenomenon was. It's not, it's not among us. It was, we're not familiar with it. And yet, in 1900, there was a revival of tongue speaking uh, in, in the United States and across the world as a result of Pentecostal movement. Uh, it was a different kind of tongue speaking, though. It was a tongue speaking that was not a foreign language, although sometimes it would contain phrases of a foreign language. But it was, frankly, the best word for it was gibberish. And uh, psychological people who study the human mind and so forth can tell you that there is a phenomenon where if you, if you just start thinking in terms of blah, 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 blah syllables, that eventually your mind will just go into neutral and will just start releasing uh, a, a long, long string of, of words, sounds, and may contain some words. It may, you're kind of a semi-conscious kind of situation. Uh, some people who studied language you'll find included in their tongue-speaking phrases out of the language they studied. The story, there's a story about a secretary to a pastor, and the pastor used to memorize from his Greek New Testament in his office, and his secretary sat outside, and she would overhear him memorizing uh, from his Greek Bible. 
and she was ill one time, I think it was, and she was speaking in these syllables and words that nobody understood, and contained in it were phrases from the Greek Bible, because she had heard him going over and over and over these phrases within her hearing, even though she herself was not doing it. So uh, the phenomenon today is really not the phenomenon that took place in the Bible. But even if it were, uh, the Bible teaches that that stopped. And that's what Hebrews here is telling us. And so I wanted to, to take that little rabbit trail uh, today and talk about it for a few moments. But I'd like to move on now to another verse in Hebrews where there's another rabbit trail that's very significant to our day. And that's over in chapter 2, verse 9, back in Hebrews again. Okay, Hebrews 2, 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for, say it with me, for every man. For every man. Satan's pretty sharp. And uh, if the sword that he's using to divide the church gets dull, he sharpens it up by getting a different sword or maybe modifying the sword a little bit to make it more effective. And that's what's happened over the last several years. There have been people that we would call Calvinists in the past. Uh, there have been some people, I, I met one person, in fact, the man who was the interim pastor here uh, that was responsible for me coming here was a five-point Calvinist. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. Uh, but the Calvinists got along. They were evangelistic. It wasn't a big issue. It was kind of a personal thing with a lot of people. But that changed over the last 30 years. And uh, the Calvinists of today are being given the name even the New Calvinists because their theology is a little bit different and their approach is a little bit different. And so the charismatic movement, which was dividing churches like tremendously, has morphed into the uh, Calvinistic movement, the Reformed movement, which today is seeking to split and divide churches. And it's not totally unrelated from the charismatic movement because one of the things that's interesting about the new Calvinistic movement is that it has different wings. It's broad in its appeal for, for how, what people are looking for. What I mean by that is, if you're charismatic and maybe not real serious about your separation from the world and your lifestyle, how you live, there's one branch of people who are th theologically Calvinistic who practically uh, are charismatic and who don't have standards to speak of. On the other hand, if you happen to be more in the direction of the, the uh, pure p pilgrims who, who were reformed and had strict view of things, uh, there are groups who are more separated and, and take a stand about separation. And musically, the same way. You have contemporary people over here. You have people who hold to just singing psalms over here as, a, as the extreme on the other end. 
So the theological camp put an umbrella over people who had a very varied uh, practical way of approaching worship. And that's made it very attractive. And not only that, but they have been extremely good writers. And they, some, some of their pastors, they retire at an early age and put them to work writing. And some of them just take the opportunity to write. And they do a lot of writing, which infiltrates their writing with Reformed thinking. And sometimes, because a lot of the things that the Reformed think, they're, they're saved like we are, uh, although sometimes that gets a little fuzzy, but uh, so a lot of the things they write are good and appealing. So you have a lot of popular writers today who have some thought-provoking devotional books and, and different kinds of books that people who would not agree with their theology at all put in their bookstores on their school campuses. And th this is a big problem. So uh, we've talked a little about this in the past several weeks here as we encountered some of its teaching, some of the teaching here in First Peter. But I wanted to try to simplify this today as much as I can, the time I have left, and say this, that there are three questions. There are three questions that you can all understand that will help you know whether a person is headed in a Calvinistic direction or is a Calvinist. And these are the three questions. Number one, is there going to be, in the future, a 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth in Jerusalem as the king on King David's throne over Israel? Is there a future for Israel, in other words? Is there a future for Israel? Now, let's take a moment and just look at two texts. The first is uh, in... Jeremiah 33, if you go there with me. Jeremiah 33. These, these verses, Jeremiah 33, should be very, very, very familiar to you. And uh, I suggest you even underline them in your, in your Bible. This is the covenant that God made, will make with Israel in the future. And uh, it's, it's laid down here for us in Jeremiah chapter 33. Hold on here. Let me see if I can find where I wrote down the exact verses I wanted to take you to. Well, I don't seem to have them here, but let's just look here and see. I sent my Bible home in the suitcase that came with Virgil. <laughs> and, and I wasn't planning to preach at that point in time. And then I found out I was preaching, and I didn't have my own Bible. I, I had only the others that I have, and so I, I'm page-oriented here. Let's look at uh, verse 16. Verse... This whole chapter actually is applicable to this, but I don't want to read the whole chapter. 
Okay, let's look at verse 14. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Okay, this is a promise that he's going to keep. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherefore with she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifice continually. And the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, If ye can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that there should not be day or night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David, my servant, that he should not have a, a son to reign upon the throne with, uh, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Levites that minister unto me. There is a promise that God made to his people that David's throne which is going to be occupied by Christ would continue forever and if you can make the heavens count the stars and you know, all these tremendous deep hard things uh, then I'll break my covenant God was not going to break that covenant there's a future for the nation of Israel and if somebody doesn't believe there's going to be a thousand year reign of Christ on this earth in the future they're headed deeply toward Reformed theology, at least as far as their eschatology is concerned. And uh, I would turn you, won't take time to do it now because I want to turn to a couple other texts. I, I would turn you to Revelation chapter 20, where it tells us that that kingdom age will last a thousand years. You see, Apostle Paul didn't know that. John told us that in 1895. So there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth in the future. That's the first question. The second question is, for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? I've got a little book that's been on my bookshelf ever since I got out of seminary, written by one of my seminary professors. And it's on the subject of, did Christ die for the world or for the elect? The The alternatives here it's called limited atonement we believe in unlimited atonement Christ died for the world S some people in the, the people in the reform camp believe in limited atonement this is a real dividing line this is this is where you can see that there's a clear a clear movement into the Calvinistic camp uh, and I would hope that th these three indicators I'm giving you here would not only be ways for you to identify uh, people who might be in these camps, it might be things you're alert to if you'd ever have a pastor come into this church uh, someday candidating and being considered as pastor. These, he better have these three questions right, <laughs> and a lot of others too. But if he doesn't have these three questions right, there's a serious problem there. And the Reformed, New Reformed, New Covenant, New uh, Calvinistic, movement uh, has a neat strategy they tend not to evangelize individuals they evangelize pastors because if they 
get a pastor and win him over, they can have a whole church of people. But if they just have an individual, it's a lot more work. That seems a little insincere, doesn't it? It does to me. But when I was, some years ago, when computers were just becoming uh, popular, I received an offer in the mail for a whole library full of books to put on my computer, many of which were Reformed, but, but many of which were very good, even with reform influence. And all they asked is that I give them $30 so they could buy the set for the next guy. So they were trying to infiltrate pastors by giving them a library of books that had a heavy reformed Calvinistic influence. Now, for someone who knows what they're doing, uh, some of those men were very insightful in other areas. But for someone who's not knowing what they're doing or is not thinking clearly or watching closely, they become a means for somebody tripping into the Calvinistic camp. And that's how they approached it. But the Bible is, is clear about this. In this little booklet, it points out that, first of all, uh, we have universal redemption. Universal redemption. Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.6 you want to look that up for us? First Timothy 2.6. I'm not very quick at the sword drill, so I've got a helper here today. This is right along our thought today of, uh, just hold a minute, our thought today of, of Palm Sunday, of thinking of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ this, this week. And just to introduce you a little bit more to what their thinking is, they take certain verses that are like this, and we don't have time to look them up, but it says, reads, if it is true that the Bible says that Christ gave his life a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28, for the sheep, John 10, 11, and for the church, Acts 20, 28, Ephesians 5, 25, it should be noticed in passing that here is the link between five-point Calvinism and so-called covenant or anti-dispensational theology. No one believes that Christ died for the saints of this age alone. In other words, when it says in the Bible that he died for the church, they have to redefine church or he didn't die for the Old Testament saints. You with me? So suddenly the church doesn't begin at Pentecost. The church began way back at Abraham or Adam because if Christ died for the church you have to include everybody in the church okay and so it becomes very anti-dispensational so uh, these so these expressions taken at face value might seem to say that his death was limited but you know I can say Christ died for me or as Martin Luther said if I say, Christ died for Virgil Wesco, I can say that. But if I say that, uh, I, I'd rather the Bible said he, he died for all than he died for Virgil Wesco because there may be another Virgil Wesco somewhere, and that cut me out. In other words, these are subgroups of a larger group uh, that Christ died for. He died for all. Go ahead. What was that text? 1 Timothy 2.6. gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. A ransom for all. 
Turn back in your Bible, if you're not already there, to Thessalonians. Uh, First Thessalonians, I'm not sorry, I mean Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Again, our verse. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for what? Every man. Let's look at some other verses here. Hebrews 2.9. Go ahead. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should, ta- should taste death for every man. Okay, there's our verse again. Now, John 6.51. And some of the rest of you might, somebody might look up 1 Timothy 4.10. Somebody, and then somebody else, Titus 2.11. And somebody else, Isaiah 53.6. And some of you could help by standing and reading that in a moment, just in sequence here. It'll help us go faster. So you're reading John 6.51 now? Okay, go ahead. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Okay, for the life of the world. First Timothy four ten. Someone. Go 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 go. Thank you. Okay, what is the key phrase there? He died for all men. What about the especially for those who believe? Is that, does that qualify? It, what, you know, the point is, he died for all men, but those who believe took advantage of it. Okay. Now the, Titus 2.11, who has that? Hath appeared to all men. All men. And Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hath laid on him the iniquity of who? Us all. Uh, there are some very prominent people who, who you'd recognize and probably have read who are not believers in uh, unlimited atonement, unlimited atonement. They're believers in limited atonement. And as I studied one of them, I, I, I came back with the same thing I so often have come back with in some of these kinds of situations, and that is they just looked at part of the verses. You got, you've got to search the whole Bible and put it all together. You can take a few verses out of context of the Bible and make them say things like that. But when you put them in the context of the entire Bible, you can't get away with that kind of theological error. And so, in your own Bible study, it's not only a matter of interpreting the verse you're studying right, it's a matter of interpreting it within the context in which it's found, even the entire Bible context. Did Christ die only for the elect? No, he died for the world. 
and the world is not a the, the, this book that goes into this we don't have time the world is not a subgroup the world sometimes is used as a subgroup like in Revelation it says the whole world wandered after the beast but that's not true because we know there were saints and people who didn't take the mark of the beast so it's, it's true but it's a generalization it's not totally exclusive but the context tells you that it's clear that the whole world wondered after him it means virtually everybody. There's just a small number who did not take the mark of the beast. And so there are cases like that. But in the places where it is used in regard to salvation, the death of Christ, it is a universal term. The last one I want to turn you to. Okay, so we got, is there a future for Israel, a thousand-year reign of the king? Do you believe in limited atonement or not? And the answer is, I hope not. And then we turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Now put on your thinking caps here. This is the last one. Ephesians chapter 2. Some of you have probably heard me pound about this before. <laughs> At least in private conversation. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? It is the gift of God. Now, I want all of you to make a commitment here. You've got to make a choice. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But in your own mind, I want you to make a choice. What is the gift of God? Is it faith? Or salvation you don't have to speak out or say anything I, I just want you to have in your mind what you think it is before we talk further okay you got it uh, have you have you all made a choice I just want to see your hand if you made a choice not what it was but if you made a choice well I'm copping out on me here The answer is it's salvation. And uh, I, I wanted to say much more about this, but I don't want to go over time. Uh, but this, this is the guts of the argument here. And uh, this is a little technical, but you need to understand this. Anybody who's got a general ed education in English should understand this. In, in Greek and in English, you have the case of a word, the... the uh, whether it's neuter, neuter, feminine, or masculine, okay? And then you have the third one, which is number. Ha! Remember it. Number, case, and gender. Uh, in this case, faith is feminine, and the it is neuter. It cannot possibly refer to faith because faith is not the right case. Or I'm sorry, not the right gender. Case doesn't matter. They have to agree. The, the pronouns antecedent have to agree, not in case, but in gender and number. And faith does not agree in gender, because faith is feminine in its grammatical structure, and the it is neuter, which makes sense. If it weren't neuter, it'd be he or she. Okay. So it's a salvation. 
That's the gift. Now, here's the point. The Calvinist believes that you have to be saved in order to get saved. <laughs> you have to get saved before you can express faith. So you can't go up to the Philippian jailer and say, what shall I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Because God's got to give you that faith. Now, it sounds horrendous, but that's what, that's what they believe. That the gift is faith. So you have to be saved before you can, can believe. I want to read you a section here. Some Reformed men carry the idea of regeneration precedes faith to a ridiculous extreme. For example, R.C. Spruill and others teach that it is possible for an infant to be regenerated and not come to faith in Christ until years later. The view which insists that regeneration precedes faith is inconsistent with the clear teaching of the Bible. For example, John 1.12 does not say, As many as have been regenerated, to them he gave power to believe on his name, even to those that have become the children of God. Instead, John 1.12 teaches that those who receive Christ by faith become children of God. That is, they are born of God or regenerated. In a similar way, John 20.31 says, Believing ye might have life. It does not say, Having life ye might believe, which is what one would expect it to say if regeneration precedes faith. Numerous passages in the Gospel of John teach that life, eternal life, is the result of believing in Christ Jesus. John 3, 16, several listed. Reformed men teach that life results in faith. The Bible teaches that faith results in life. The biblical position is that a sinner is regenerated the moment he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. These issues are discussed more further. So we have three questions today to identify if someone is moving in this Calvinist direction. Who can give me one of them? Any one of them? Is there a future for Israel? A thousand year kingdom ruled by Christ on the throne of David in Jerusalem on this earth. Number one. Number two? For whom did Christ die? Right. And he died for? All the world. And the first, and, and the last one is, which comes first? Salvation, regeneration, or faith? Faith. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The it is? Huh? Salvation. See, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God. People say, well, the antecedent of it is right before it, faith. Wait a minute. That may be true in English, but it's not true because faith is feminine and it is neuter and it can't be the... The neuter has to refer to the more general concept of salvation. Okay? That book is readily available at Middletown Bible Church website, which I recommend to you for a lot of good teaching and information. Thank you so much for your attention today. I know the family school and Bible has been a little bit different than usual, but uh, I think we, we kind of worked things around so he could do this lesson for the church today and main service, which I think will be a blessing to you. Father in heaven, we rejoice at your presence today in our lives. We thank you for all you've done for us. We thank you for the truth of the word of God, which keeps us from error. I pray that this lesson might help to do that in a proper understanding of your word. 
to you be the glory and honor forever and ever in Jesus' name.